Amen. Well, good morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. Glad you're with us. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to Genesis chapter 6. We're going to kind of be there. We're going to kind of be everywhere. But Genesis chapter 6 is one of our main stories for today. As we continue thinking about what it is to be dependent on God, what it is to be a creature and to relate to the Creator. We use the word grounded as part of our sermon series titling and marketing or whatever. And the reason is, what, what am I grounded on? What do I depend on? And how does that change who I am and what, what I do? I don't know uh, how many people think this way. But it seems like a lot of self-helpy type stuff focuses on your perspective. I don't know how often you're around somebody who's bubbly, but it can be nice. It can also not be so nice. Somebody's optimistic. They have a, a view of the world that lives them, uh, leaves them with a lot of energy, a lot of optimism, a lot of excitement. Maybe that's okay at like 3 p.m., generally not great at 7 a.m., might want to throttle that person. I was thinking today of my, my general kind of outlook on the world and just kind of probably more how I sleep and stuff. I wake up ready to go. And growing up, certainly in high school, I'm 16, Andrew's not, and so I'm driving him to school. And for me, morning time, I'm ready to roll. I'm ready to rock. I got the music up loud. It's not a Van Halen concert or whatever Josh is doing on his weekends, but... Uh, it was loud, it was exciting, and I would wake up excited, and I'd start the music early, and I'd turn it on loud, and Andrew was not that way. He was always so mad at me. <laughs> I think he would live his life in a, in a state of anger from like whenever he woke up till 10 or so, where he could get away from me, but it matters how it is you see the world, your perspective on things, and if it's rooted in something true and right and good, well, fantastic. If it's artificial, then you come across as just phony. It doesn't really work out. God has given us not only a, a posture of dependence on Him in our being. That's how we started. We were just talking about the, the truth of the matter, which is that in Him we live and move and have our being. That is from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And then last week we talked about how that affects you, how that works its way through you and who you are and what you do, the way that you act, and how this Abraham guy, by faith, became a hinge point, a pivot point for all of human history. And it's not because of his grandeur or his greatness, but simply because of his dependence. When he did it, it was wonderful. When he didn't, it was terrible. But today, I want to kind of dig in a little further to that. I want us to see how we see, not just as Christians, but, but what is it as a God follower, as somebody who sees God, what is, what is his perception that he expects us to have, the way in which we're supposed to live our lives. If you're reading through the Psalms with us or, or through the Old Testament with us, you read Psalm 19 this past week, and says, let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That there is something about the meditations of your heart. There's something about the way that you speak, which comes from the way that you think think, the perceptions that you have, that God expects to be a certain way. 
We're going to look at the story of Noah. We're going to see some of the stuff that's around Noah in Genesis, and then we're going to compare that to Christ and understand how our perception is supposed to be grounded in God. Genesis chapter 6, if you're there, we're going to be in verses 11 and following. We'll kind of jump around a little bit and tell this lengthy story in in a short way of how God, in judgment, brings a flood on all the earth and yet saves this one family through this guy Noah. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. All flesh, all people had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I'm going to destroy them. Uh, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark, which is a boat, of gopher wood, and make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. And then he describes a little bit more, verse 17. For behold, I'm going to bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, in which is the breath of life under the earth. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing, of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up, and it shall serve as food for you and for them. Verse 22 Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. If you flip over to chapter 7, it says in verse 6, Now, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Now, this story is nuts. If you've grown up around the church, you've probably seen it or heard it before because it involves lots of animals. So it's a great one to tell kids because kids like animals, so you talk about animals. And like, oh, all kinds of craft opportunities. Very difficult with the Lamech story I'm going to tell you in a second to come up with good craft opportunities. Noah, though, <laughs> fantastic, easy, great. You tell it to kids. You tell it to adults. It's got this wildness to it. When you tell it to kids, you've got animals. But when you tell it to adults, you've got the extremity of God and his judgment. And the regular reminder of God who not only judges but forgives in the um, symbol of the covenant that he made with Noah through the rainbow. So we look up at the rainbow, we see the rainbow, and it's got a meaning given to it by Scripture. I think there's even a a third maybe way of seeing this story, the more you kind of sit with it. And it's the question that I'm asking today, which is, what is it to be a person of faith? Yeah, we got this God of justice. Yeah, we got this God of mercy. But what is it to be the man Noah and to actually follow in faith, to do as God is commanding Noah to do? I think it comes back to this perspective on God or the God perspective he wants us to have. If you're reading through, we're doing this reading of the Old Testament. We start in Genesis, and I want to give you a little bit of structure for Genesis. If you ever try and just sit down and read it, 
The whole book is centered around these genealogies. And if you're like me and you read it, those genealogies are sort of in the way of the good stories. But if you're like Moses who wrote Genesis, the genealogies are the point, and the stories are just helping to make that point more clear. The structure of Genesis is the genealogy because from the beginning, as God makes Adam and Eve, you have Adam and Eve's kids representing the two halves of this curse promise that God gives. Where he says to the woman, he says to the serpent, that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. We'll talk more about that next week. But the idea is that there's, there's this continuing both people against God and people who aren't great. We talked about Abraham last week. We could talk about Noah getting naked and drunk in his vineyard. We'll talk about that a little bit next week. Not great, but these people who do see God and, and walk with Him and follow Him. And the, the story goes that Adam and Eve had boys, they had sons, one Cain, one Abel, and Cain kills Abel. And God curses this Cain guy, and you see that the curse that God put on Adam and Eve is, is continuing. This guy Cain, he's, he's representative of it. Yet, God gives Adam and Eve another son, this guy Seth. And through the line of Seth, we get this guy Noah. Again, not a great guy. I don't want my boys, I don't have sons. I don't necessarily want my girls to grow up and marry a guy like Noah necessarily. He's not perfect, but he is a guy who knows and follows God. What is it about this Noah guy that separates him so greatly from this other line? Or... What are the ways in which we become like him and not like this other line? I think it's helpful, it's sort of instructive to continue to look at what it was to be in rebellion to God. God, in the beginning of this story, in, in chapter 6 here, he's talking about how all the earth has corrupted itself and all of flesh has walked away in rebellion against him. But what does that really look like? In Genesis chapter 4, we get a little bit more story about Cain's kids. There's one in particular, a guy named Lamech, and he's representative of the group. In this guy, Lamech, we get the first ever instance of polygamy. He takes two wives instead of just having one. And this Lamech dude, with his wives, declares his own sort of view of the world trying to figure out what God wants us to see. Lamech's going to tell you what he sees. It's right after the story about God giving the curse toward Cain, and he tells Cain that you're cursed. You're going to have to go out. You're going to walk around as this cursed person. And then Cain says, oh, the first person that meets me is going to kill me. And God says, no, 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 I'm going to put a mark on you. And whoever does that to Cain, on him, vengeance will be sevenfold. Set up. Then, kids, 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 you get this guy Lamech, he takes a couple of wives, crazy, and then he sits those wives down and he sings them like a song, sort of. It's set off as poetry. And he says, Ada and Zila, those are the names of his wives, if you want to name your little girls, Ada, Zila, I think that's what those are, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You see what he's saying? He's declaring his own glory. 
And he's saying, if you do anything against that glory, if you, if you wound him, he'll kill you. Even young men, even a kid that strikes him, he'll, uh, I've killed a, a young man for wounding me, for striking me, I've, I've killed him. If, you, if God's revenge on the person who would attack Cain is sevenfold, the revenge of Lamech's is 77-fold. Whatever God is, Lamech. Do you see the difference? God's setting up for us these two ways of seeing the world, these two ways of seeing God. And on the one hand, we've got this Lamech fellow who's declaring his independence, his, his own dependence on himself to declare for himself his own glory. On the other hand, we've got this guy, Noah. Noah is set up in opposition to Lamech that he is dependent on God. He sees and recognizes that there is a God. People might see him and say he has what we would call faith. And a lot of times people in our world call that faith blind faith. By that they mean that you turn off your ability to take in information and just decide that you're going to commit to something. You, you blind yourself in order to have faith. Now we disagree with that totally. And one way I would show you that people who have faith are not blind is because they do things that are crazy. Not just having faith, but I looked this up this morning. It's just wild. When people have faith, they see something that's worth everything. The way I want to prove it is the, the martyrs. All throughout Christianity, the history has not just been of victory and victory and wealth and excitement. It's usually a story of our persecution. And it's not just ancient times and Nero and lions and lighting up people in his garden. The fact is that there were more martyrs for Christianity in the 20th century, 1900 to 2000, than in the previous 19 centuries put together. That's true. That means people are still being martyred all the time for Christianity. Let me ask you. If they're blind, what is it that these people see that they're willing even to die? See, we don't think of faith that way, and I, and I think I can push you to see that you don't really even think of faith that way. That, that really what you're doing is you're taking all the facts that you've got and you're putting them together into a worldview. They become for you sort of like spectacles, glasses through which your vision is corrected and you see things as they actually are. Again, what is the vision that Noah has that allows him to be faithful, to walk with God when all the rest of the world corrupts itself? Well, to understand, we want to look at the model, and Noah's a great model, but he's not the only one or even the best one. When we're trying to think about what we were supposed to be, we don't just look at Adam before the fall, which is a very small amount of Scripture. We can also look at the perfect version of who we were supposed to be, in Christ. Being made in the image of God, Adam was what God intended us to be, and yet he fell. So for us to see the image of God, we got to look somewhere else. He's not the only one. In this guy Christ, we have the perfect image of God. And so, not just Noah, I want to think for a second about Jesus. 
See, Jesus models for us not just what it is to be a little bit obedient or to be obedient sometimes or to be obedient at that one big moment, which is kind of what you get from the Old Testament heroes. They're obedient at that one big moment. Jesus is obedient all the time. We can compare ourselves with him. We'll fall short, but it'll at least allow us to see what we should be doing. When you think about how Jesus served people, boy, it's really rough to compare it with your own life. I was walking with some guys in the park two days ago, three days ago, and I saw on the ground a little jewel case for a CD. I don't don't know if everybody knows about these or not, but when I was in high school, it was a lot of before a lot of the MP3 stuff, believe it or not, and when we wanted music, you'd either have to buy a CD or you could rip a CD, don't tell your parents, and then you could burn it onto a like rewritable CD. And they were crazy looking and cheap and kind of plasticky and, and you'd write on it in a Sharpie, you know, whatever it was you'd put on there. And then you'd put it in this super cheapo case called a jewel case. And walking through the park, and it's 2021, I have no idea why it was a thing, but it was there. It was like a little piece of a jewel case that was just on the ground. And as we were walking past, I picked it up. Not because I wanted to take it home and put it on a CD or something, but because I thought, you know what? I'm going to be a good citizen, and I'm going to throw away this piece of trash. And I was thrilled with myself. I was impressed, not just as a Christian, but just as a good citizen. That In this park, out of my love for this park and the other humans who enjoy it, that I'm going to pick up this piece of trash and I'm going to throw it away. And I didn't even let the other guys I was with see me do it. That's how godly I am. And yet... Not 10 minutes later, one of the guys we were with's dog runs up and he starts trying to dig through this little thing. And we just go to see what it is. And it's a piece of plastic. It's some kind of like a lunch bag or a Kroger bag or something. And inside is, I think, a dirty diaper. Of course I didn't pick it up. <laughs> but I had the thought. How could you not? Like, my hypocrisy didn't go that far. I could see that I had thought I was this amazing guy for serving people by picking up this one piece of clear plastic. But uh, that's, I'm not doing that. That's where my citizenship stops. I found the depth of it. I could plumb my own care for other people based on what I was willing to do and what I was absolutely not willing to do. But look at Jesus. In his life, we don't just get exciting examples. We get examples that show us that he's willing to go way further than we ever thought somebody would. It says with his disciples, knowing that he's about to die for them. Yet even then, John 13, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped about him. Listen, we could dig in here, and we should, and we will one day, and I think maybe even we have. But what it says, and it's making it very clear that this Jesus, knowing that he's about to die for these people, is still in this moment of preparation even willing to serve them in this way. 
that Jesus, knowing who he is, knowing that he's from God and going back to God, yet takes off his outer garment, takes off his glory and goes even lower, that he's much higher than us, but he's willing to go much lower than us to wash the disciples' feet. And to wash whose feet? To wash this Judas guy's feet. John, the apostle, goes out of his way to mention not only that Judas was there, but that Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. And yet he served. Not only is Jesus a servant, Jesus is a worker. If you look at his ministry, it's not only amazing what he did, it's amazing the quantity of what he did. We're not told all that he does. In fact, in John it says that were everything about Jesus to be written down, the world itself could not contain the books. So we don't get a tenth of what Jesus did. But we do know what we're told in the Gospels. And what we're told in the Gospels is that Jesus was busy. When we work, we're working for ourselves. And so the point at which the difficulty of what we're doing outmatches the pride that we're hoping to get from what we're doing, we quit. For Jesus, though, he's got some other way of doing this. He's got some other reason for which he's doing this. So much so that we get Mark chapter 1. And as Jesus is beginning his ministry, he's, he's just been baptized, led out in the wilderness, tempted by the enemy, and then he begins to preach. And this is what he says. He, his whole gospel message is opened up in this one verse, Mark 1.15. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And in that one verse, you see, just the same as we see in the Lord's Prayer, that he is doing this for God and his kingdom. And because he's working for God and his kingdom, he's able to lay out an incredible amount of effort and work. In Mark chapter 1, we keep hearing the word immediately, immediately, immediately. That this happens, he begins to preach, and immediately he's calling disciples, and immediately he's casting out a demon, and immediately he's healing a bunch of people, and immediately he's preaching throughout all of Galilee. You're reading it, you can't even get your breath. Imagine living it, imagine doing it. How does he work like that? Why does he work like that? He sees something. He's doing it for something. His view of the world is just totally different. We talked about serving. We talked about working. But think for a minute about how he forgives. And there's a moment where Peter comes up to Jesus and says, How often should we forgive Jesus? Up to seven times? And because many of us have read the scriptures, we kind of know to laugh at Peter because, you know, seven times, we know what Jesus is about to say. But, but for Peter, he knows he's going way above and beyond what the Pharisees would have said. He's definitely going way above and beyond what his own life probably showed. But he looks at Jesus and said, how often should we forgive? Up to seven times? Jesus tells him, no, 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 no. Seventy times seven. And then he tells this story about the unforgiving servant. It's this parable that Jesus has of a, a ruler who's got a guy who owes him an unimaginable amount of money. Never could pay it back. And yet, the ruler, out of pity, just forgives the whole debt. That forgiven servant then goes and finds a servant who owes him not an insubstantial amount of money, but not anything like what he owed. And instead of forgiving that guy, he chokes the guy out and he sends him to debtor's prison until everything should be repaid. 
The other servants find out. They tell the ruler. The ruler finds the forgiving servant. I'm sorry, forgiven servant who is not willing to forgive. And then sends him to debtor's prison because how hypocritical. Jesus making the point where our forgiveness should come from. But he's underlining for us not just what he thinks we should do, but what he himself is going to do. See, he tells Peter 70 times 7. And then this Christ goes to a cross, not for his sin, but for ours. And from the cross says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Christianity happened right then. Jesus, God and man, perfectly without sin, takes on our sin. And then in that moment, paying for that sin makes a way for us to be forgiven of God. If you hurt me, it is difficult for me to forgive you. I'm tempted to either make it like it's not a big deal and sweep it under the rug and then treasure my resentment of you. Just being real. Heads up. (laughs) Treasure my resentment of you. Or I'll confront you about it. I'll feel that much more offended. And I'll probably banish you. This is what a proud person does when they really want to hurt you. I will take away myself from you. (laughs) It's like the greatest thing you could ever have is me and no longer like you would weep and come on your knees to try and, oh, just hang out with me more. But that's just what I'm tempted for. Difficult for me to forgive. And yet, if I can see what Jesus saw, what Noah saw. See, Noah didn't see perfection in his own life. What he saw was a God, a God who was both holy enough to destroy sin and merciful enough to save sinners. Noah didn't do anything perfect. He just trusted. He saw that God. He walked with that God. He just trusted that God. And in Christ, we see the perfection of what we were supposed to be. We see the God who is Holy, who doesn't mess with sin. Jesus was totally perfect. He did never sin. He instead made a way to forgive us. He showed himself to be the perfect Seth, the perfect other version of Lamech. Do you remember in the beginning we were talking about this guy, this polygamous guy who who wrote a song about how he was going to have vengeance on those that hurt him? And if you hurt him, it wasn't going to be sevenfold Vengeance, like God promised against Cain, it was going to be 77-fold, unlimited vengeance. And yet, what does Christ do? He teaches us to forgive, and then he shows us a forgiveness. He gives us a forgiveness that is 70 times 7, unlimited forgiveness. Don't you want that, Jesus? Don't you want that deal? Those are your options. Your options are self-dependence, and you have to provide for yourself and defend yourself. Or you can see and know 
this God and receive the love and forgiveness of this God and show the love and forgiveness of this God. I don't know where you're at this morning. I know many people are still investigating Christianity. I know many people have been Christians a long time. What I'm teaching is simply what all of Scripture is preaching, which is to know God is to see a God who is holy. He doesn't mess with sin. It's not okay that you're sinning. But it's also to see a God who forgives, really and truly forgives even in an unlimited way because of his love for you. To see that, to know that, it changes everything. Do you know that? Listen, the next steps that David was talking about up here, they're geared towards creating either your service creates opportunities for other people to see that and to know that, or just to give you opportunities to see and to know that. That's what community group's all about. That's what these Bible times and stuff's all about. That's what a baptism shows the world. Think together about what it is that you need to do to see the way they saw, to understand the way they understood, and to live and enjoy the way that God's provided for us to. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would give us time to think and think clearly about who you are in your gospel. Give us eyes to see you, the God who forgives, the God who loves, but also the God who's holy enough to insist that sin be paid for. Lord, will you let us see so that we repent and believe? Will you let us see so that we worship and serve, so that we forgive and we work like this Christ has taught us to do. Not for your approval or for your love, but from your love and from your approval. Lord, I pray that you would teach us these things and help us to remember these things for your glory and our good. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.